0: Welcome back in to Don't Retire, Semi-Retire. I'm your co-host, John Jagay, joined by Zurich Oz once again. Welcome, Zurich. Hey, John. Thanks for having me again. So as we wrapped up episode four, and we do encourage you to listen to these episodes in order, but as we wrapped up episode four, we were talking about three-week tests and then back-to-back six-week tests of what your potential future might look like to get an idea of some of the aspects you like and don't like. So let's come back to that for a moment before we move on.
1: Right. So in our last conversation, we finished up with the end of two, six week tests back to back. So essentially, by doing that, you created the sense of uh, either homesickness or missing your original life in the middle of the process, which gave you valuable insight about what you actually would want to have in your eventual semi retirement life. What are the things from your current house that you would like? I'd like to talk about some of the results of mine to give you kind of an orientation when I tried doing this. Sure. You know, like I mentioned in the previous podcast, I, I spent a bunch of time in Hood River thinking I loved kiteboarding every day in 2011 and just found I couldn't do it every day because it was exhausting or, you know, there was some, you know, weather issues and things like that. But I thought it was still going to be the right place. So I went back into Hood River in 2012 and I stayed for about nine weeks. I got different equipment and I got a better massage therapist and, you know, I tried <laughs> to pick the weather window right and I tried to have more hobbies. And what I found was it was just too small. Even if I kite it every day, it didn't make me happy. I found my mood generally over time just trending down. And there was really no way to stop that because it, it just, it didn't have the, I guess, savoir faire or the culture that I was looking for in the town. It was too small. And so it was a fail. It just totally failed on that deal. So then my next test was I, I went to Pompeii in uh, central, southern Italy My hypothesis about that was I love nature, and this was like a cool throwback, kind of naturey place, small town, not big place. And it was, I would call it a small win. It was so fascinating. The heritage was so interesting. The the nature and, and what they had dug out was really cool. The problem was it was in Italy, and I found very quickly that I did not like Italy. Okay, It had all the things I was looking for. It had interesting food. It had fantastic culture. It had fantastic history, but I couldn't get past the machismo. The men were very macho and, and the women were also very aggressive. And the culture was just the further south you got, the more aggressive it was. And I, I love that about the Italian culture and the Italian people for sure. But it wasn't something that I could deal with 24 7. Mm-hmm. I'm Scandinavian and from Minnesota. I mean, we barely talk to each other because it's freezing and you don't want to go outside, <laughs> right? You know, and it's so like to have that sort of cultural pressure, it was an enormous fail for me, which I did not expect at all. But because I had done the the back to back trips. And what I found myself missing in the middle was quiet people that didn't talk to each other, <laughs> you know? And <laughs> it was that sort of awareness that led me away from the further Southern or Latin cultures. So then I, I guess the big winner for me in that situation was I, I went to the south of France. And what I had in France was I had my favorite wine and I had people that treated me like I was an American and the French can be really arrogant, which was great because it, they had less pressure on me. So I got kind of the Scandinavian aloofness, but it was warm and there was great wine, and I was in the South of France. And so it's just kind of this trial and error hypothesis, scientific method to figure out what kind of like this, you know, this porridge is too cold, this porridge is too hot, this porridge is just right. That was kind of the end of these six week back to back experiences. And so I bring that up to essentially give you the introduction into the next phase, which is really the final test. Mm -hmm. You know, section four was. You test the connection that you have kind of in the dating analogy we were talking about. You test whether or like, you want to be with this long-term partner. You go steady, which is, we'll date me. But you have the connection. You decide to be with this one particular partner. The whole point, like I said before, and this is you still want love, excitement, and happiness. Yeah. You know, and so whether, again, like I said before, whether or not you've been married eight times or divorced or whatever, or single or never want to date again, you still want the excitement. And so it's now time to commit, get engaged. It's time to commit to a person in this phase of this process, you're essentially committing to something for 90 days. We're going to do a 90 day test. And that's a lot longer than one week or three weeks or six weeks or two sets of six weeks. I mean, yeah, all the stuff comes out of the woodwork. I mean, that's kind of the point of, you know, you get engaged. It takes you two years to plan a wedding. You know, there's a reason for that. You don't want to make a mistake right in the middle of that
0: deal. By the way, quick side note there, I don't recommend being engaged for two years. My wife and I got married <laughs> later in life. I moved in with her nine months because we were long distance. I moved in with her nine months later, we got engaged nine months later, we got married. And she said, I don't want a two year engagement. I don't want to deal with all the drama. Let's just do it. And we did it. And we had a great wedding and knock wood four years later, we're still together.
1: Nice job. You're a smart guy. I was engaged for uh, about the same time, 18 months. That's the right window because you know, you think you know them, but you don't entirely know them. And then it's too late. <laughs> yeah.
0: Fortunately, not in both right. of our cases.
1: <laughs> but there's enough that you can figure out in those longer time periods about is this really going to work or not? I mean, nine months is still nine months, right? I mean, it, you, you learn a lot in that phase, right? So, in this point, again, if you're going to get engaged and you're at this point, again, count your blessings. I can't stress this enough. If you're at this phase in the process, in this financial process, specifically, you know, romance aside, you're a blessed person because you've been able to test all these different things. You've been able to figure out what you like, what you think you're going to want, how you think you're going to want it. And you can choose exactly how you want to live your life, the rest of your life. And that's a remarkably fantastic place to be. So whether or not this process has scared the heck out of you or not, or whether it's fully exciting and thrilling, you just be really happy that you got this far.
0: As with the title of our show, compare that to somebody who you know, gets their gold watch figuratively and walks out the door, has no idea what they want to do when they retire and they watch the prices right for a day and they say, Oh, now what? Right. This is why this scientific method is so helpful because, not to be repetitive here, but you're figuring out scientifically what
1: you like and what you don't like so you can know what you want when you're done working. Absolutely. And it's important at this point to know that. So, really, this phase of the process is pay attention. Things change, it's normal. Don't take your heels and you find that during the engagement, I'm sure during your process. Like, well, I like Futura font. Well, she likes time, new Roman font. Okay. Is it worth the fight? No. You know, and it's these areas where you think you know what you like. You you did the dating, you found the partner you like, you tested the connection, you found the joy you hope for. You're really close, but it's time to really put the pressure to it or add a level of intensity that maybe in some cases is fabricated but at least gives you a sense of how will I fare under these moments of stress. Right. And and this comes back to the scientific method. And now our 90-day trial. Walk us through this. Okay. So similar to the three-week trial and the six-week trials, the the double six-week trials, the 90-day thing has a few things that are, are similar and different. So again, the scientific method, the general steps of it are you make an observation that describes the problem. You create a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, and then you draw conclusions and refine the hypothesis. In this case, the observation is you found two six-week activities, destinations, or life experiences that you love. Which one could best fulfill your work less and play more objective? How and when, right? And the hypothesis is 90 days will flesh out all the things I may have missed in the euphoria of my three and six-week tests. 90 days will also allow you to test all the results of your research. Because most likely, if you're going to spend 90 days doing something, you're going to research a lot of it and try to figure out there's going to be a lot of sub hypothesis within your overall hypothesis. Third, you've learned to cope with the homesickness that you had, or you've moved past it, or you've incorporated it into this phase of your test. And that you love doing what you and experiencing what it is for the whole time. And you think you're going to be much happier at the end. And at the end of the day, this could be it. This could be how you're going to be happy in semi-retirement or retirement. So this is kind of for all the marbles, that kind of deal. Or you're still testing it, so you can eject if it doesn't work. <laughs> That's important. Um, <laughs> you're engaged. You're not married. Yeah, Got it.
0: Right, <laughs> right, right. Like uh. Worst case, you're at the cost of the diamond. Anyway, <laughs> That's continue.
1: Right. That's right. Exactly. So when you test the hypothesis in this situation, which is different than previously, it is, once again, did you feel like 90 days was enough? Did you get bored? Very likely you're going to get bored in 90 days. How did you handle it? What changed in the 90-day experience? You know, when I spent 90 days in... France. There are a lot of things that changed about how I experienced a three- and six-week test because I started to feel like I was part of the community. In some cases, that was great. In some cases, it was horrible, and I didn't anticipate that. I wouldn't have known, right? But I kept track of it. Gee, this sort of community is more interesting to me versus that sort of community, and it was that sort of tracking of the results. And then, do the results of your research and preparation? How do they hold up to the scrutiny of the ninety-day test? All the research you did all the little sub research, were you right? Did you think that you were going to be in a place that was more natural and you loved the natural space? Or did you feel alone and isolated and bored? Did you like being really close to water or did the constant pounding of the surf drive you absolutely mental? <laughs> Again, you're tracking how did you feel every day? How happy are you? What did you love or loathe? Again, it's okay not to love everything. In fact, it's normal. Honestly, if there's no tension because you like something or, or hate something, life gets pretty dull. Mm. As we all know, the growth process involves liking and hating, not just liking. The other thing to keep track of here is how did your emotional experience swing? Was it wider? Because sometimes on a three week trip, you're just on this constant state of euphoria. On a six week trip, you will dull back down until I'm bored a little bit or I'm not as happy. But on a 90 day trip, you're going to have the full range of emotions. In a lot of ways, it's like going to college for a term. You're going to have wonderfully happy times or wonderfully horrible times. Was it more scary? Was it more thrilling? Was it more polarizing? Was it more wonderful or less wonderful? And how did you do in those ranges? Some people I know that have seasonal affective disorder, they should not be in a dark place in the winter. (laughs) Yeah. But they don't know that until they
0: try it, right? I'm here in Michigan, and it's about 4.30 right now on a Friday, and it's going to be dark in about an hour, and I am not happy about that. That's exactly
1: it. Is the sun important? You know, one of my trips to Europe, I realized I really need the sun. You know, I just don't function as well. And that's something that you don't know until you try it, because you think, oh, I'll suck it up, I'll get a grow light. It just doesn't work, right? And so, essentially, in this process, over these 90 days, as you're actually doing something very different, you know, how is the sense of love, terror, boredom, anxiety, joy, pride, hiding your ecstasy, romance, how does it change over time? And can you handle the swings? Mm. Because if you're in a place that puts you in a seasonally defective disorder place, you probably can't handle the swing. You probably can't get out of the bottom. And that's just something to know. This is the same thing with tracking your mood overall. But the wonderful thing is you'll have more data. So you'll have 90 days of data to track how your mood changes overall. And with a data sequence like that, it's very easy to go look at things like climate or sunshine or rain or what's happening in the political environment or all those different things because you have a much wider timeline. And so by looking at the wider timeline and how your mood changes, it gives you an idea of can you filter out for, you know, there's some political conflict someplace. Or is it really the, the local location because it was sunny every day and I'm always happy on sunnier days? Or I'm always happier on rainier days because I'm from Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. And it's that sort of long cycle that helps you kind of filter out what's my natural cadence and then well, how does this new location or new activity or new experience change that? It's a broader data point. Assuming, of course, you say 1 to 10.05s. It's funny because as we work through this process, Zurich, and we're talking
0: about our future, our emotions, how we feel, and putting numbers on it and quantifying it and putting data on it, which I think is hard and a little counterintuitive. But just like anything, any set of data you're looking at, whether it's a stock market over a long period of time or touchdowns in a football game per game, whatever you're looking at, the more data you have, the
1: more informed a decision you can make. And the more accurate, clear data you have or the more binary data. I mean, obviously, like or not like isn't the full evaluation of a complex subject like art or wine, but it does give you an idea if you want to try it more. For example, I don't really like Italian wine. It's just my flavor palette. That does nothing wrong with Italian wine. It's really high quality wine. I just It's not for me. So does that mean that I want to spend a lot of time in Italy? Or if I love French wine, I want to spend a lot of time in France where I'm surrounded by my favorite gluttonous thing. Well, I think I'll stick the second one. Right. Drawing conclusions is next. You're gonna draw conclusions based on the data experience over these ninety days, and you're gonna look at your original scoring metric. You know, you thought climate mattered, you thought culture mattered, you thought language mattered, you thought access to the Autobahn if you like cars mattered, but maybe it doesn't. How did all the metrics that you used on your three and six weeks test change once you hit ninety days? Are they still relevant? Are they materially or significantly different? Is the experience different? You know, is it better or is it worse? Right. And then What are the surprises? What things happen that you never considered? Like when you're at 90 days, because you have so much more time over which to collect the data, you're much more bound to run into the activity that happens once in a blue moon that you never knew about it. My wife and I went to Hawaii in December
0: and we went to the island of Kauai. We had a great time, but a Kona low weather system came through, which apparently happens once in a while. And we had four different excursions get rained out, everything from a helicopter tour to a sunset <laughs> right, cruise right. to a rum right, safari. and they all got cancelled right But it didn't really put too much of a damper on our trip because we were in paradise and we had a right. great time. we still hung right. out and we said what? So we realized that Hawaii we joked that Hawaii is our happy place, but right. there's something to that with the data where even though something, bad and unpredictable happened. Right. It didn't affect our overall happiness.
1: As long as you collect the data, it doesn't matter whether it's great or horrible in a lot of ways, because you're just trying to figure out is this on the net overall great or is it sustainable on the net overall? And the fact that you didn't care that you were still in paradise and it was raining, that's exactly what you're looking for. It's like, well I don't care. It could rain every day. But again, you're you're looking for those things you didn't notice. Like, you know, several times we were in parts of France and We learned that they had like this roving farmer markets that came through. We got to go to all these different markets and all these different little towns. And that was super fun. We had no idea, right? So that connected us to the area. One of the things that's very different about this phase of the testing is you start to draw global conclusions because I like to call them the what abouts. What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? And in this section, you start to have more of the existential side of it, which is, could you see yourself doing this for life? is this a lifelong sort of thing so if it's a place could you live here for life you know what about the healthcare what about medications what about insurance what about automobiles what about transportation what about moving what about houses apartments condos neighbors local laws immigration emigration you know what about money what about investments what about economy what about resources and you start to look at Wow, I found this place I really love. I made it for 90 days and I'm still happy. What about all the aspects that I of the tedium, I guess you will, of daily life? Will those things still work? In those situations, if you don't speak the language, it's gonna be a lot harder. I'll tell you that much. You know, or if they're a culture that doesn't follow the same, you know, legal or financial systems that you're in. And then nextly, if it's an activity, could you physically or mentally do it for life? Who is the oldest person you know who's doing it? For example, when I started looking at kiteboarding, I knew 85-year-olds that were kiteboarding in the river huh. in 50 knots of wind. It's like, okay, you know, they could do it. They're like, well, we don't jump as high as we used to, but we can do it. Do you have the physical activity to do it? Can 70, 80, 90 year olds do it? Right? And then what are the statistical risks? What about the mortality tables? What about the common injuries? You know, if you're gonna be a skydiver, what's the likelihood that you know 85-year-old skydivers? Exactly. And is it interesting enough to take a lifetime to master? We can all play ball in a cup for five minutes, but you don't want to do that for 50 (laughs) years, right? I mean, you know, this is why people like golf so much because it's really interesting. Every day is different. There's so many variables. It takes skill, right? But even if you don't like golf, you can see the benefit of it. Mm. Is it worth it? If you died doing it today, would you have felt like your life was well spent in that experience? And this is one of the things I think people overlook. It's like, sure, you could do your hobby, but would it make you happy? Is it compelling? Is it meaningful? And then uh, the next part is, what does it take to actually do it? And this starts to feed into our next sections. When you decide you want to do this thing, this activity, move it to this place, what will you have to change? You know, will it be easy? What will be easy? What about the easy things? What about the hard things? What about the impossible things? Like, what can't you actually do? You know, for example, I really thought I wanted to live in Europe. Well. I can't spend more than a certain amount of time in these different countries because of the way that rules work unless I expatriate and become a citizen of a different country, which I'm not going to do, right? And so there's there's certain limitations on what's actually possible. And then stakeholders. Will the key people in your life support you? Will your family like it? Will your friends like it? Will they encourage you? Will they thwart you? Do you care? mm Maybe you don't care, right? How will that affect you? What about the impact? What about the stakeholders, right? And then it's like, what about the logistics? How hard is it to do? Can you humanly accomplish it alone? Do you need a small team, a large team, an army? And then timeline, what are the stages? How long does it take you to stick the landing in each milestone? Does it take, you know, three months to figure out which country you want to go to? And then does it take two years to figure out where you want to be? And can you even do it? And is it realistic, right? And then, of course, what about Murphy's Law? what could go wrong Exactly the what about they're not as exciting but if you ask the questions then you're really well prepared and you help put yourself in a position where it's like okay I've thought through all the potentialities it's just like engagement I've thought through all the potentialities if it rains on my wedding day what do I do what about the rain it's just a simple kind of process of putting this on a grander scale of course how do you deal with the the different complications?
0: Making sure that none of those Murphy Law situations are a deal breaker, right?
1: And in some cases, they are, right? So you you essentially did this, your 90-day test. You picked the one winner of one of your two-by-two six-week tests, and then you, you tried it and you went through this whole process. And then you go through it again with the other winner, and you compare notes, and then you kind of pick the following winner of the two of them. A couple of good examples here, just to give an orientation is, I told you about how I went to France in 2012 and thought it was fantastic. Well, I did a 90 day test, you know, in 2014, I spent a lot of time looking for wine, tasting wine, telling around the countryside, trying to see what it was like to work remotely. And it was crippling. (laughs) You know, this was 2014. They didn't have the internet speed they do now, you know, so trying to do investments and investment management and track stuff like that was very difficult versus when I was in the UK, they had much better connective systems. And so I spent... This whole 90-day process in France, as we've talked about, and the net game at the end was, it was going to be almost too difficult to change. I needed the internet, which was a deal breaker. Like I couldn't operate at that level, at the level I needed to without being in a big city. And I didn't want to be in a big city. And it was a deal breaker for me on that level. You know, The logistics of it got to be just too difficult. It wasn't possible at that time. And that happens, right? And it's okay. It's like, okay, well, France will continue to be a 90-day experience for me. You can sure as heck bet that I tested the Virgin Islands before I moved down there. <laughs> you know, and, and this was the process that I followed to get there. The point I'm trying to make with all of this is, you could still fail after your 90-day test, but all's not for naught. And I, I think people get hung up on the idea of, well, I tested all this stuff and I don't really love it for more than this time frame. Well, yeah, but you loved it for the time frame. Yeah. I still try to spend as much time as I can. In Europe, when I have the opportunity, because I love it. I just know that it's a six week or a 90 day experience. And that's still an enriching part of life. You're not always going to get what you want on these tests, but you're going to get really close and you could have a section or a selection of what you want. And that's just as valuable because that's what's great about semi retirement. You don't have to do the same thing all the time.
0: Right. And that gives you some clarity of things you might want to do for a shorter term, but that'll also give you, as we've been talking about, maybe some clarity of what you want to do for the long term. Next episode, episode six, we're going to talk about getting into that final answer, doing your math, checking it twice, paying for it, committing to that final decision of what you've discovered you want to do uh, with your future. Zurich, if somebody wants to get a hold of
1: you, what is the best ways to find you? Uh, I've got a unique name. It's Zurich, like the city in Switzerland, Oz, like the beginning of awesome. And type Zurich Oz into any web browser and you'll find me immediately. My website is ZurichAws.com, Z-U-R-I-C-H-A-W-E-S.com. The phone is 763-577-1900. My direct email is Zurich at ZurichAws.com. You know, reach out to me with your questions. I love to talk to people. This is why I'm doing it.